And they all said the same thing. These were leaders in the black community, leaders of diversity, leaders of equity inclusion, said actually do nothing, be, just listen. Listen, listen, and listen, and see what comes up, see what patterns you can find, see what you can learn. And the biggest thing I kept hearing was about the urgency and importance of voting. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. And that's Jan Singer. She's the CEO of J. Crew, the fashion brand and retail store known for its preppy looks and avid fans. This year, J. Crew is closing all its stores and offices on Election Day in an effort to encourage its employees to cast ballots. It's not a move you'd expect from a major corporation, but Jan isn't your typical CEO, as corporate executives were all too eager to tell her when she was starting out. You care too much. They, they largely. Uh, men would say to me, you're never going to be a CEO. I never wanted to be a CEO. Well, you're not going to be a CEO. You care too much. You care too much about that. But the that became in favor with the workforce. Now, Jan is leading J. Crew through a particularly difficult transition after Chapter 11 filing during a global pandemic that has changed the way that all of us work, live, and dress. Some of those changes, of course, are hard to live with. But Jan says that others may be for the better. But in essence, some things have to be slower. Things can't move at the same pace. And I think that's just okay. And now, here's my conversation with J. Crew CEO, Jan Singer. Jan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Anna. Super excited to be here today. We are less than 20 days out from the election, and J. Crew has joined other companies to make it easier for employees to vote. Can you tell us a little bit about that effort? Yeah, I'm super excited. Listen, um, the world is changing before our very eyes every second. And whether that started for people back in February, or even before then, you know, everybody has their starting point, but inflection points that have happened for all of us around the pandemic. And of course, around also the social justice pandemic, we are also living in the murder of George Floyd, just so much unrest. And we as a company, quite frankly, you know, at the same time filed for chapter 11, you know, new CEO coming in 30 days in the office in person, and then we're filing. And so there was a lot of, you know, supreme unrest in uh, already existing retail industry for our company and in the world. And you're sitting there as a leader. And, and I guess the question on my mind 24 hours a day was, you know, what can we do? What can we do? What should we do? And when you're, you know, new in an organization and new with a team, and in your own kind of battle for next and longevity, and the world is evolving around you in a way, it's, there's limited options. And it kind of, you know, in the middle of the night really was, I think it was four in the morning, which is not the middle of the night for me. So <laughs> I just like shot up and I sent a text to my COO and I said, are we closed on election day? Because as, as I was watching all this happening, I was also reaching out to leaders and asking, you know, what can I do? What can I do? And they all said the same thing. These were leaders in the black community, leaders of diversity, leaders of equity inclusion said, actually do nothing, be, just listen, 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 and listen, and see what comes up, see what patterns you can find, see what you can learn. 
And the biggest thing I kept hearing was about the urgency and importance of voting. It was a consistent theme, whether that was from Michelle Obama listening to what she was speaking about or to local leaders. They really centered around not make big checks and big donations. That really was around voting. And I said to my COO, are we closed on election day? Like, does retail, where, where are we? Well, we get a few hours off to vote. And that was it for me. It was like, I've lived in Atlanta. I've lived in Columbus. I've lived in Portland, Oregon. I've lived in Boston. I've lived in New York. And voting in almost every one of those states is not the same. And it is for sure an issue in different parts of each state. So uh, the question was asked, what happens if we close in a presidential election so everybody can vote? Distribution centers can vote, people who work in our DCs, people who work in our corporate office, and the people who work in our stores. What would it cost us? Is that the contribution we should make? So it came out of that whole you know, moment in time, the moment we were in, the moment the nation was in, and it seemed like an obvious answer, which was give people the time to exercise their most important you know, civil liberty and um, why should they have to choose? You know, that's the question. There's a lot to unpack there and I want to get into a bunch of it, but I do want to just kind of zoom out a little bit because J.Crew is making a decision that a lot of companies this election cycle have made to make it easier for people and not just executives or maybe not even just the people that are working in stores, but the people that are putting the boxes in the mail and all different centers of the business to shut it down. I don't think 10 or 15 years ago, most companies would have considered that. What do you think has changed? Are we just at that inflection point, as you said, where so much of the world is happening and coming together and that this is one of the things that that people are feeling really strongly about? I think there's more information about voting, period, just educating people, although we all think we know that we have the right to vote. We didn't all have the right to vote for very long, okay? So I think there's more information out there and it's very accessible about the truth about voting in this country from the very beginning to today. I think that's spurred a lot of interest and energy. I think the second is the information and data about who doesn't vote and how many don't vote. And I think we're at a place where really it is the thing we can do. You can feel very powerless sitting in your own state. You know, I toggle between Ohio, Massachusetts, and New York. They're not the same states. Different governors, different leadership. I can't toggle so quick right now because we're closed out in New York. But, you know, it's uh, you become very acutely aware. We all travel a lot in these moments, how different leaders are handling things differently. And I think that information becomes power. You are looking at different sources to calibrate, obviously, of what you stand for, what you believe in. But it all kind of centered around the same thing, which is that it's not sufficient, the amount of privilege we have to vote and the amount of action that's happening. And I think it's not a very heavy lift. And so for companies, maybe what's changed. Um, I think what's changed is the sense of urgency around it. I think empowering the organization to exercise their vote the way they want was a very easy and, 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 and affordable opportunity. I think it doesn't hurt to be in this pandemic crisis where we're challenged anyway at retail. So really, is it going to matter to the day? So can we just give that day what it is and make up the day the rest of the week of the year? Because the year is not going to be what it, what it was. <laughs> supposed to be. So I think what's changed is that. I think information, I think understanding and empowering the organization. And I think the simple reality that one day, you know, one day, making the day, making the week, making the year is not going to offset. It has to be about the bigger picture. And this is a big picture day. 
I want to talk about the big picture for you as well. As you mentioned, you came in as CEO of J. Crew at the end of January 2020. What a time to be taking over as head of the retailer. The company was already struggling, uh, had to deal with the coronavirus, making sure its employees and customers were safe. J. Crew was also the first major retailer to announce Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the midst of the financial struggles related to the pandemic. Can you reflect a little bit on how you approached dealing with so many you know, just multiple crises at the same time. Yeah, I knew, I mean, some of the things, you know, I mean, going into a role like this, look, I did a year's worth of diligence and J. Crew's been in my life, my whole life. I'm from New England. And so I've tracked this business and been a part of it my whole life and in, in really a part of it. I've known the former leaders. So I've known about J. Crew and I knew about the situation and I made it my business for the year that I was taking a break to really understand what the financial structure was, what the architecture was, what the implications were, what the paths forward were, to be able to take a calculated risk on, on taking this role. Um, and, and why, you know, why take it? Um, I believe deeply that J. Crew is a brand that's classic American, timeless. Um, I believe that there are there's a culture and a tenacity to the team that's unlike anywhere else in any place I've been sometimes, I could say that clearly. Um, and I believe that it has more potential to serve, right? And more purpose to, to have. And it, and there aren't a lot of classic American brands that we look at in this way. It's a beloved brand. It's, it's well, the sentiment is quite high. And so I knew that was fine. And studying the paths forward, look, a lot of things could happen. And so we held hands and went through that. What I couldn't have ever anticipated was a uh, a public health crisis of epic pandemic proportion. And I couldn't have anticipated, you know, being in New York during that time. Um, we unfortunately lost a very dear longtime associate in a hideous beginning of this crisis to COVID, uh, breaking my heart for somebody I've met once because you could feel the organization's pain around that. You can never anticipate that. Um, but uh, the team was prepared. The team was prepared both on the financial side. The team was extremely prepared in crisis management. We're downtown on Wall Street, on Liberty Street. The team has was beyond my even imagination prepared for crisis management, given who we are and where we reside in New York. So that was a gift in itself. Um, and then it just comes down to making sure that the team um, in the moment has a plan. In the future short term, we understand what that could look like, but that I work on future vision, that I continue to um, work with the team about what's possible, what the potential was. So it's kind of like I'm in the moment, I'm in the next, I'm in the future every day. And you kind of prepare knowing that those are the three plates you're going to spin and you make sure you surround yourself with world-class talent and team and community and have a great partner at home. That's what I do. <laughs> Always the key. Uh, you know, it's often said that the true character of people and, and certainly leaders is on display in the middle of a crisis. What part, if you were to reflect back of your character, did you tap into or have you tapped into over these past, you know, nine months or so? I think it comes down to the thing that people told me would never work for me as a CEO way back in the beginning, you know, that I care that you care too much, they would be largely uh, men would say to me, you're never going to be a CEO. I never wanted to be a CEO. Well, you're not going to be a CEO. You care too much. You care too much about that. But the that became in favor with the workforce over time. And the that is like, I, I, uh, I love people. I'm super nosy. I'm very curious. I love human behavior. Um, and, I, and I care. 
And so I think that, you know, I was very worried coming into a team that had been on quite a roller coaster ride and in the very near term had been through a very tumultuous time and with a CEO who then departed, no CEO, and actually had quite a good 2019 who could have very easily said, we're good. We don't need a CEO. Why are you here? And then this crisis happened and hopefully it became evident why I'm here and even virtually evident that I'm here because I care. I'm here because I can take complex and make it simple for you guys. I'm here to connect us all. Um, and I'm here to help us do our best work in the path forward. That might have not been so evident coming off of a great year in 19 with no leader. So I, I think that's what I tap into is my heart. Um, I have a lot of people, we all have a lot of good brains, but my tenacity and my heart, I think, is what I'm tapping into in, in this moment. And it's a lot of tenacity sitting in this office, you know, in multiple boxes around me from moving for the second time this summer. And it takes a lot of fortitude and my team has it. And that's what I'm coming with every day. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, you know, I'm sitting in my house in Capitol Hill, um, you know, I'm normally on the road, probably a lot like you are all the time up in New York doing interviews, things like that. You come into a new company. I'm sure you're hoping to, you know, kind of get to know the team in a better way. How have you handled work from home? You know, has it become maybe more normal now than it was in the beginning? I think some days feel normal and some days feel completely wacky. You're just like, what's really happening here? I mean, as we're sitting here, there's ha stuff happening all around my house. I think, you know, uh, there are days you can get very in the zone and it's back to back and it's very efficient. Even my kids who have been going remote up until recently, their grades are better. They feel more productive. That's fine. But the downside is I like people. I walk around a lot. I talk to everybody. I manage by walking around. I hear things when I'm walking around. People grab me for questions or ideas. And I miss that, you know, because I think we, I can work faster that way. I can work more in touch that way. Um, I can work in kind of a zone that way. I've always kind of, you know, I travel like you do. And when I'm working, I'm working and my family is my family. And now it's one thing. And, you know, yesterday I got handed this little piece of paper with an idea from Sophie. She's 13 from the next room about a sweatshirt. And that wouldn't happen in the office. That's good. But that's also like, you have to take a break from the meeting and say, okay, Sophie has an idea. And you have to honor their little voices because they're listening and they're learning and you're in their space. So there are days it feels like super efficient. I love that I don't have to struggle about getting dressed every day and I don't have to commute. But there are days that, you know, you're trying as a mom, I have twins, that you're trying to really respect what they need from you in the middle of a day that usually you don't see them. And at the same time, you're trying to also appreciate that that is such a gift. We're all, you know, kind of finding it out. But it goes up, I'm on, it's on a roller coaster. Some days amazing, some days you're like, what the heck is going on, you know? Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty honest for all of us. <laughs> um, let's talk. I, I want to take a step back and look at your career. But before I do, I know a lot of our listeners are obviously Washington based, a lot of them on Capitol Hill, big J crew fans, you know, I think super fans. I don't know if you've ever been to the Capitol. There's a lot of women who wear, you know, J crew dresses like a uniform with a sweater. What's the future? Are you, are you guys going to kind of return to that? I know there's been some kind of different philosophies about where the brand was going. And I know that our listeners in particular would be interested uh, in that. I mean, I'll share a little bit. We haven't quite broadcast the full vision yet, but a little insider for the political family that our fans, and I know you guys are. I think, you know, the thing that makes J. Crew great, you know, when we really won our game was, you know, being very committed to key defining items. I, I was at Nike for 10 years. I think people could name about 
maybe 10 or 20 sneakers by name. At J. Crew, when I got this job, I got more texts around, you know, I'm a, I'm a tippy sweater girl. I'm a pixie pant wearer. I wear, you know, the barn jacket. Like people know the names of the key defining items. And I think putting those front and center as classic, iconic, you know, objects of desire is everything. I think people right now want to trust that things fit that they have quality and they're consistent. They also would like a little fun. So informed by fashion, you know, color print pattern. And then they also want to be aware of what's next, but not overwhelmed by it. You know, I think that really valuing product at the center, um, the, the consistency and quality, getting back to the quality we should be at, the fit consistency, especially with such a big digital business and us all shopping online. And then ultimately having fun with the things you love the most. So it's a little bit of a spoiler alert. It's not, it's not so probably surprising, but that, that's the game right now. And I'm thankful that this time and J. Crew are lining up because, um, you know, I think talent is interesting and my team has a lot of it, but timing and tenacity are the game right now. And I, I think it's our time and we have to serve the community and the things they want. We'll be right back after this quick break. I wanted to share a show with you from some of our friends. It's called Sunstorm, hosted by Aijin Poo and Alicia Garza, two of the leading organizers in America. The show is all about how women help each other stay joyful and powerful amidst the chaos of life today. This season focuses on finding your lane. Each week, Aijin and Alicia talk to their friends and heroes about inspirations, finding your center, and what each one of us can do to make the changes we want to see in the world. Subscribe to Sunstorm wherever you're listening to this show. Let's go back kind of in history for you. Where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your origin story. Sure. I grew up in Brockton, Mass, city of champions. Um, I'm fourth generation Brocktonian. I was, you know, my family thought I'd be there. We'd all be there. Um, Brockton is a place of uh, family and hard work. It's an industrial city that went defunct. It was the first shoemaking city in the country. It goes back to Civil War times where they made the boots for soldiers. I mean, really industrial manufacturing town. Um, it's, um, a city of hard work. It's a city of family and it's absolutely a city of winning. It's a super unique place. Um, it's, uh, for me, my mom was a nurse for 54 years and my dad was an accountant in a local practice and everything was about the community. It just was about serving the community. In fact, my brother currently, both of my brothers in Massachusetts, one is a judge living right close by to Brockton. It's just very deep. And so, um, the hard work, it was a place where, um, there really wasn't a lot of slack. You know, you carried your weight. You didn't have internships. I had 6,000 kids in my high school, Brockton High, go Boxers, 1,500 in my class. Um, I was an average student and went to Ithaca College, go Bombers, and was an average student at Ithaca College. It, going to college at Brockton High wasn't the topic of conversation. You know, it was going to work. And so um, I, that, that brought a lot of values uh, front and center for me. Um, again, the community of Brocktonians are very connected, um, and I'm proud to be from there. It taught me a lot of grit, a lot of grit. So did you always know, I mean, you, you kind of grew up in this town of obviously people, but they probably, I'm sure your family thought you'd end up there. Um, you know, you go to college. Did you know you wanted to go into retail? Cause you've really worked at, I mean, some of the most iconic brands, you know, of our generation, Nike, Spanx, Victoria's Secrets. How, how did you get into it? I think, you know. I always looked at the world through magazines, movies, and books, you know, sitting in Brockton, while I love 
being there and I love being a part of that town. My parents took me to New York when I was eight. We never really went anywhere. And they took me to New York when I was eight. And I remember my dad saying to my mom, we've lost her. Like New York for me, something happened. And it still does. When I go to land coming in from Columbus or Massachusetts and I see that city, I have goosebumps talking about it. I, it's just an energy in me that I couldn't deny. And I, you know, would use magazines and movies and books and anything I could to understand who was in New York, what was happening in New York. I mean, I had interview magazine, Andy Warhol covers on my wall. Like, who was I? I don't know. My mom didn't understand. I know, right? Like Taki, I was following, you know, Cornelia Guest. Like, I don't know who these people were, but I wanted to be with them. And my, uh, and in my mind I was, um, but it didn't fit into my family's uh, plan for me. And when I went to school, I studied psychology because, again, the human behavior, you know, why did people do what they did? How did people get to be where they were? I wanted to understand that. And then I wanted to get to New York. I always worked since I was 16 in cosmetics behind the counter at Filene's and Jordan Marsh and um, Bloomingdale's. And I loved makeup. I loved beauty. I loved the industry. And so I was going to New York to be in beauty. Of course, when I got there, uh, every interview I had would put me in this room, like a four by four room with a typewriter for all of you people who don't know what that is. It's a machine that you type on paper um, and you have a whiteout and they would give me a typing test. And I, I didn't know how to type and I didn't know why and I failed. So I went home to Boston to Catherine Gibbs secretarial school, went to secretarial school and then found my way back to New York and worked my way back into the industry through a lot of happened circumstances and networking, found my way to Chanel. Talk a little bit. I mean, a lot of the women and the people in general who listen to this podcast are in the middle part of their career. They aren't, you know, yet at the top of the mountain, at the top, you know, looking down. Can you give give them one piece of advice uh, in terms of how you were able to make it climbing the ladder. I'm sure, you know, as you noted earlier, you, people weren't uh, carrying CEOs at that time wasn't in vogue necessarily. What, what's looking back one thing that really worked for you? I think, well, I'll tell you two, if you don't mind. One sure. is the, the simple conversation of being willing to do whatever it takes. And we, and I'm still willing to do whatever it takes. There is no job too small. So number one, just be the person who's willing to do whatever it takes and be willing to not even know how to get it done and take that risk. It's really important. And I, and I think the second is connected to that, which is to stay with it. You know, have the tenacity to pick yourself back up and keep going to make the phone calls that you're afraid to make because you don't know if they'll help you. Um, a quick funny story, a student reached out to me and asked me if, if they could interview me for a school project. Um, I said, sure. She came up on my Zoom. I have a friend with the exact same name. She came up on the Zoom by coincidence. Um, by the way, there's an opportunity for those two to meet. The student said right away, can you introduce me to the person offline? Can I call them? That's how it happens. And those two people are connected now and they will help each other. So I think willing to do whatever it takes and having that tenacity and kind of ability to want to continue, even if you fail and pick yourself up and work the network and work your work, it'll be fine. Just keep going. Just keep going. All right. Well, we are quickly running out of time, but I'd, I've been asking people on this podcast for the last couple of months anyway, and almost all of them to talk about 
how life has changed. So, you know, we're all hoping for a vaccine and for life to go back to normal, of course. But what's one thing during this time that you want to keep going post coronavirus? One habit, one thing you've been doing that's maybe different than before? I can think of a lot of habits I don't want to keep going first. I would tell you that. But I think the one habit is about the pace. I have a bias for action. I do move fast. My team's probably rolling their eyeballs if I'm going to say I've slowed down. But but in essence, some things have to be slower. Things can't move at the same pace. And I think that's just okay. It helps us all think a little bit more clearly. We can make more thoughtful decisions. We can hear more points of view. There are some things that I've uh, had to really just kind of throttle back and take a beat and go slow. Because over the screen, it doesn't translate. Not in person, it doesn't translate. Um, So I think some of that pacing could be better. And listen, I don't care if I don't fly that much again either. So although I like my little Delta points, but the fact is, it's okay to be home. I I have to say that to me is the biggest takeaway is that I do not need to be on the road once or twice a week, <laughs> every week. Um, you know, it's, it's good to be on the road, but uh, there's a lot you can get done, right? Even from your own house. Uh, and then the last question, what's one thing you are most looking forward to doing that you can't do now? Putting my shoes on. <laughs> I mean, can I just say, <laughs> sometimes put my shoes on and walk around the house. I mean, what am I looking forward to? I just being with people, hugging people. And I, I think it's funny, even in New York, it was always like when you ended a meeting, it was like double air kiss goodbye. And you could hate that, except that it closed you off and you were friends and it was emotional. New York is that kind of town. Washington has its own culture. There's no connection physically. And I think our kids miss that. I think, you know, we all miss that. It's nice to be with family that you can hug. Absolutely. Well, Jan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Anna. Thank you for all that you do. It really matters. And I appreciate having the opportunity. Thank you, guys. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Irina Gucci is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at A Palmer DC. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. And if you like what you hear on this show, check out some of our other podcasts, Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, and Pulse Check, just to name a few. And starting this week, Global Translations, a brand new series from Politico. The way to bring this country to its knees is to choke off our supply. Imagine for a second our globe as a series of supply chains. Food, everyday goods, and raw materials zooming across the world in a single day. But what if those global supply chains suddenly ground to a halt? It's not just about finding which vaccines work, it's about preparing the manufacturing and supply chains for those. And if one little detail in those supply chains goes wrong, we might not be getting vaccines to people when they desperately need them. The global pandemic showed us what it's like when we can't get the things we need. Masks, personal protective equipment, even toilet paper. There's simply not enough raw materials. We have to figure out how to get this right. There is a bigger story behind the scarcity. We need to fight back against China. A bigger picture with implications for our future. 
that's going to be a major challenge. On this season of Global Translations, where has globalization fallen short? And where do we go from here? The 90s called and their economics is not what we need now. I'm Louisa Savage. I've spent my career thinking about the global forces that shape our world. Join me and other journalists from Politico. A new season of Global Translations coming in October. Presented by City, a leading global bank.